2: Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host,
0: Jared Van Heese.
3: Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here to become better habitat managers. That's our goal, guys. Thanks again for tuning in. To all you listeners, once again, we really appreciate it. We have another great episode for you today. We have Eric Schnell from the Quality Deer Management Association. And the main discussion points are habitat and how habitat improvement can help fight disease. Disease being CWD, EHD, and even the triple E we've had here uh, in Michigan this fall. Some very interesting stuff on this on this podcast. I really did enjoy it. Uh, we talk about some of his roles in QDMA. Uh, a buck to doe ratio and how that can impact what types of habitat do you not have on your property that you could um, fawning cover, native grasses in succession, and then we also cover some experiences that Eric has seen other people doing with habitat work to help control disease. There are things we can do, guys, as habitat managers, and this podcast is all about it. I want to thank our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Killer Food Plus. We are doing a killer food plot giveaway on our facebook right now for suffuse attractants these are either synthetic scents or non-bait attractants that we're giving away on there they cost like 20 bucks a piece for these bottles we're giving away five or six of them so please get on there and check it out hopefully you guys can be the winner you can see all of their products at killerfoodplots.com. he has some really cool stuff coming out in 2020 i just had lunch with nick the other day and uh There's a lot of cool stuff coming out with uh, some soil defending type stuff, some water defending type stuff, um, and even some disease fighting as well. So it's pretty relevant to our topic here tonight. Uh, Secondly, I want to thank Lincoln Roan from Packer Max. Guys, Spring Food Plus will be here before you know it. Uh, We get a $50 discount on all Packers if you mention the Habitat Podcast. Now, I know Christmas is coming up too. It might not be a bad time to, uh, you know, Hint, hint on that one for you guys for your spring food plots or, you know, even buy one for your wife and maybe she'll go out and do some food plots for you if she has a Packer Max. I, I doubt that would happen, uh, but it could. You never know. It's worth a shot, guys. Check the link out at PackerMax.com. And like I said, $50 off for mentioning the Habitat podcast. Now, I want to thank everybody again. Uh, a lot of thank yous today. Uh, thank you for all the awesome iTunes reviews. If you go on iTunes and look up Habitat Podcast, leave us a five-star review with some with some text below and write something nice. And just make sure to leave your name because I'll find you on Facebook or Instagram and send you a free decal. Uh, we have a bunch of great reviews on there, and we want to keep those coming. And then lastly, I want to direct you guys to the new website, at HabitatPodcast.com. We have a bunch of new hats and details up there along with every single podcast episode. 62 episodes. This will be number 63 right here. And uh, we're just going to keep pumping these out for you guys. You know, if you subscribe with your email address on the website, you get a discount on all gear, and you'll be notified of a new podcast whenever we come out. So thank you so much, everybody. Thanks for tuning in as we become better Habitat Managers. Uh, And let's get Eric Schnell on from the QDMA. All right, everybody. We're back with another episode of the Habitat Podcast. We have the co-host Brian on the line and Eric Schnell from the QDMA. How you doing, Eric?
2: I'm doing well, Jared, and Brian, i been looking forward to this. Thanks for having me on.
3: Oh, no problem. I'm glad you came on. Uh, you had, uh, well, first of all, you just got back from Alaska, so that's pretty cool, but second of all, you were messaging me from Alaska about an interesting topic, and I thought we should jump on the phone and talk about it.
2: You bet. Well, thanks. I'm, I am uh, very interested in what we can do with Habitat to help with some of the disease challenges that we're facing right now in Michigan, and uh, really appreciate the chance to, to have a chat about that. There's much that we don't know yet about some of the diseases we're fighting, but I think there's some good hints that Habitat could play an important role for us.
3: No, that, that's perfect, and I'm not sure if you've uh... Listen to our show much before but all we do is talk about habitat and and deer and every now and then we'll go off on pheasants and and squirrels and rabbits and things like that but um, Brian and I and our listeners are all bit with that that bug and we obviously want to create better wildlife for for the animals and and insects and everything that are part of our landscape so like I said I do appreciate you coming on and uh, normally how we get this rolling would be I'd like to hear a little bit about you. Um, tell us about you know who you are, where you're from, and how you got into hunting and habitat work and all that good stuff, if you don't mind.
2: Okie doke uh, Well, uh, it's somewhat of an unlikely story, I guess, in a way. I grew up grew up in the Chicago area. Uh, didn't have any hunters in the family. I lived in a suburb. Uh, I didn't uh, didn't hunt as a kid. I didn't get exposed. Uh, I I should say, I I didn't hunt, but uh, I dreamed about it. I read field and stream, I read outdoor life, I was an avid fisherman, fished in every little office park pond I could find, uh, rode my bike to the river, (laughs) fished for carp and um, some rather polluted water. I mean, I did everything I could, but um, I didn't have a way to hunt until I got out of college, was uh, on my own and uh, kind of started hunting at that point. I guess where uh, my well, intense love for deer hunting and deer habitat started was about 20 years ago uh, when my wife and I bought a farm with the express purpose of creating habitat for deer and pheasants and other wildlife, and uh, I've been on kind of that journey there. I got further hooked when we had a co-op started in our area, uh, Trio Fam and uh, Casey Young started the Red Creek Co-op, which now is covering over 13,000 acres in Northwest Islandia County. we uh, started that about 2005, um, and it it was amazing what it did to our honey. Absolutely amazing. It We went from a situation where we never saw, uh, very, very rarely saw a yearling buck after the first day or two of gun season. Um, and now we can go out and we can see three or four, three-and-a-half-year-old bucks and an afternoon hunt. It's uh, quite amazing.
3: Yeah, you you got a couple different amazing things there. Um, I didn't realize you were part of that co-op. That's that's a pretty big co-op here in Michigan. I see all the pictures on Facebook every year, and you guys really do a great job. And then the other amazing thing was how would you get your wife on board to buy a a farm for – for strictly improving, uh, you know, wildlife habitat. That sounds like something we could all learn from.
2: <laughs> She's a, she is a saint, and it uh, goes more than that. We planted over five thousand trees the first year.
0: Wow! And
2: uh, you, you know, of course, we were twenty years younger at the time, but she was right there beside me for uh, probably at least three thousand of those trees that were planted. Uh, so we, uh, she, she worked hard. She helped me. Uh, and worked hard and it's been that much time going by now we've got some pines and spruces that are probably 30 feet or more tall Um, you know you get to see all that grow up it's it's rewarding for her and um, certainly rewarding for me
3: wow now that that is pretty awesome now how did you go from chicago to north i'm sorry north east or northwest ionia county
2: uh, well, it, it, it was a work thing. I okay. I, I, uh, I I graduated from college. I was given the opportunity to go to a number of big cities. A recruiter uh, for the tech company I was signed to, NCR, said to me, "Well, you, we've well, got some choices here, and they're going through all these cities. You know, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles. Um, you know, we're working through these big cities and." um then uh she got to the end and she said oh and we've got one in duluth minnesota but you wouldn't be interested in that and she started to go on to whatever she was going to say but i was stuck on duluth minnesota i said wait a minute back up tell me a little bit more about <laughs> that duluth minnesota position and uh um because I, I wanted to become a hunter i was and i was an avid fisherman and duluth sounded perfect and uh It was great. I had a sales territory that was northern Minnesota, northern Wisconsin, and a couple counties in the UP. Wow! And so I'd have a fishing rod in the back of my car in the summer. I'd have a shotgun in the back of my car in the the fall, and uh, it it was fantastic. So that was my that was how. And I had a a good buddy at work who was an avid hunter as well, and he kind of introduced me to a lot of what they were doing up there in Duluth, and uh, that got, that. I mean, once that fire got lit, it was not going well, out.
3: That will happen. <laughs> uh, some <laughs> people might not think it's a good thing, uh, but it's, it's it happens, and, and we're well, the same way. Yeah. You,
2: you know, you talk about tangents, and that is a bit of a tangent, but right now <laughs> at the Q they were doing the field of fork program, and it's targeted at these young to mid middle age adults who have you know money and time and um, we're just trying to light the fire you know and <laughs> I think if uh, there's an awful lot of people out there that just haven't had that chance and they need somebody to help them. just like I had a friend who was a mentor for me, uh, you need that kind of opportunity and that's, so I think it's a fantastic thing that the QMA has launched to uh, help recruit new hunters through this field support program
3: yeah so good segue there, Eric. Uh, how did you get involved with the QdMA and uh, what is your role with them?
2: Well yeah good yeah the, and it is a good segue because I mentioned the Red Creek co-op before and uh, that co-op seeing what it did for my hunting and my farm and my area uh, was uh, very uh, exciting for me and uh, you had to get involved with the co-op. And so I did, and, and Case and Trio welcomed me in, um, working with and it was just a great bunch of guys who got to know all of my neighbors in the area, and um, then that kind of lit the uh, uh, QDMA bug, and I got connected with uh, Chad Thielen over in the uh, Point Point Ionia branch, and some of the guys there got connected with the West Central branch of uh, QDMA, um, basically you did, did some uh, work with both of those, became an officer in the West Central branch for the QDMA, and then made the mistake of uh, mentioning to Michael Goyne, who was the president of the state uh, chapter of QDMA at that point, mentioned to him that I'd like to get involved at the state level, and uh, um, he, uh, he pulled me right in. <laughs> so, um, And uh, it's It's uh, been both very frustrating and uh, tremendously rewarding to uh, work at the state level and do what I can to educate our legislators, our NRC commissioners about our needs, uh, uh, needs of our deer herd, uh, needs for better deer management, uh, and and really see some, at least some positive progress. It seems like sometimes we go, you know, two steps forward, a step back, and we might go two steps back and a step forward, but on the whole, we're, we're seeing some progress with the, uh, on a number of fronts, and I think we'll probably touch on some of those today.
3: Okay, and you know, what is your actual position? What's your title?
2: I, I am the currently the state president um, for the Michigan QDMA uh, State Advisory Council, is what we call it.
3: Okay, okay. Um, I was at the I don't know what they called it the meeting over there north of Lansing this summer with all the heads of all the the different branches in Michigan where mm-hmm. Matt Ross was there was it your rendezvous Brian? or uh, yeah at yep okay yeah that's, where, that's where I first uh, heard you speak and I don't think we got to talk much together that day but I was impressed um, by all of your dialogue and and the information, the way you came across, I was impressed. With a lot of people there that day, but uh, you were one of them that stuck out. I think I've friended you on Facebook after that, and been following you ever since. So when you uh, when you reached out, I was more than happy to get you on here. And um, I just I think that we need somebody who is is well versed, who is intelligent, can come across the right way to be in your position. And, and like you said, I, I, I it can't be easy. I mean, it cannot be easy. So, uh, and to your point today, talking about diseases and how it relates to habitat management, um, I mean, you probably have a lot on your plate with QDMA. Is that right? <laughs> yeah,
2: I had a completely different idea what I was going to be doing as president, um, <laughs> state president uh, for the QDMA. I came on board just about the time they found the first case of uh, chronic wasting disease in Lansing, oh, yeah. and uh, uh, so I. That uh, that unfortunately has taken an awful lot of my time. I, uh, I, I on one hand I'm glad I was here and able to uh, do what I could uh, and do what I can, um, but on the on the other hand um, it seems like that's been a huge portion of uh, where I spend my time working with. You know whether it's testifying with the legislature to get more money for chronic wasting disease testing and research, or uh, going to NRC meetings. Um, it's just, it seems like it's never-ending sometimes. <laughs> but um, but we I think in some ways we're making progress, and I am uh, uh, excited about some things that we're going to—we're starting to try uh, in this state and could have implications for the rest of the state and the rest of the country if we're successful in it.
0: Yeah, that that seems to be taking up a lot of everybody's time nowadays. The CWD, and I noticed uh, EHD is hitting pretty hard in some areas. Eric, do you want to go into the uh, current state of affairs with both of those and give us the uh, most up to date information on those? And you would mentioned before we started recording there there might be a third disease on the horizon here for us too. Yeah,
2: it gets it gets confusing for hunters with all these three letter. Diseases we have, and and um, I'm going to tell you I um, I could may not necessarily have all the latest on everything, but I'll tell you what I know um, I, um, about about those three diseases right now. Um, so there's three three of them um, actually four that uh, probably I should mention um, that, that we've got some news on. Um, First of all, right now, um, the, we have equine encephalitis, which is a fairly rare um, mosquito-borne disease. It goes by the three-letter acronym of EEE. Um, it, uh, that equine encephalitis um, primarily kills a lot of wildlife, but it can impact humans as well. Uh, there's a, of the humans that get the disease or get bitten by a mosquito, get the disease in them, a fairly small percentage, or a small percentage, I think it's in the neighborhood of 5 or 6% or so, will actually develop some symptoms. Um, the, the bad thing about that, or the scary thing about it, is that of that 5 or 6% or so that show symptoms, about a third of those are going to die. Oh, wow. And, and we're, we're seeing it, you know, and that's, the, that's what the research shows and the experience in other places, and we've seen that exactly that. that The numbers I have seen is there's nine known human cases and three deaths. So it's uh, adhering to that uh, 33% rule very closely, currently. Is that in
3: Michigan? I I know we've been hearing about it in Michigan. Is that all in Michigan, or where are those numbers from?
2: That's just just in Michigan, nine, nine cases, three people have died. That's why they're... I think it's, uh, portions of 14 different counties are planned to be sprayed uh, to try to kill the mosquitoes. I've got some big concerns about that, kind of yeah, relates back yeah, yeah. to some of our habitat stuff as well. Um, you know, it's very serious. Um, you know, we've got hunters going out out in the woods right now. They they uh, can be exposed. They can get bit. Um, so it's serious. But on the other hand, it's also October second. Today and it isn't Going to be more than a couple of weeks till we get a frost And uh, what, when they Spray that they don't just Kill mosquitoes they kill every bug They hit uh, My understanding is you're also supposed to cover You know if you've got the Small ponds or water features because they're Worried about fish and frogs and amphibians Well you can't cover everything That that may land on I even saw a post from a local vet Saying uh that it could kill cats. Uh, wow. <laughs> um, I don't know how true that is, but uh, that vet, who uh, I trust, uh, felt that was the truth. So um, can't, can't verify that. But, you know, they started talking about spraying. We've got um, uh, monarch butterflies migrating south right now. Um, if they get uh, under that, they're going to be dead. We've got concerns about honeybees and all our different native bees. Uh, they will be killed um, all for, uh, you know, maybe two weeks or so of uh, killing those mosquitoes. So I've got concerns about it. But that's, a, see, and again, I guess I'm picking off on another tangent. But that's that's, okay. Uh, that's one of the triple-letter uh, diseases that we've got to be concerned about right now. Um, sure. The second one I'll mention, and this has been going on for 20 some years in the state, and that's bovine tuberculosis. So it goes by the initials of BTB, a small b and capital TB. Um, that's been in the northeast of Michigan uh, in our deer herd and in our cattle. It uh, poses an existential threat really to our cattle industry and our dairy industry in, uh, in the northeast part of the state and potentially the rest of the state if we don't manage it well. So there's uh, people's livelihoods at stake. There's hundreds of millions of dollars uh, um, in economic activity there um, tied up in that the bovine tuberculosis. And uh, nothing has um, really they haven't been able to get rid of it. It's, And that's a bacterial disease. So a little bit Different than equine encephalitis, which is viral. Um, bovine tuberculosis is a bacterial disease. Uh, gets spread in a number of different ways, different interactions between deer, um, you know, be in their saliva. Uh, they can, uh, you know, eat, uh, go in and eat from food that's put out for the cattle, and get the cattle sick with uh, bovine tuberculosis. it can work the other way as well. Uh, they uh, get in, uh, sick cattle. Uh, can be uh, chewing on some food items that the deer later uh, bite into, and uh, they will catch uh, tuberculosis there. We've uh, been hovering, in, you know, right around 2% the last few years of the deer tested in the Northeast will have bovine tuberculosis, and um, so it's it's not, you know we see little year, some years it'll spike up, some years it'll go back down. We haven't been able to get rid of it. The the latest news on that is that a a hunter, um, an older hunter, got infected, they believe, from uh, cleaning a deer uh, caught bovine tuberculosis. So it's a reminder that that disease can cross over into humans relatively easily. Now, when you're cleaning deer, if you're from that part of the state, if you're from that uh, bovine tuberculosis, tuberculosis area, you know, just... Uh, you know wear some gloves, uh, be careful. If you see one that has the cysts in it, don't eat it. And although you can cook it out, um, the advice is still don't eat that deer uh, take it into the DNR, have them test it. Um, but um, you know just take some precautions. But there's no reason not to deer hunt or not to eat venison in the Northeast either. We've been we've got some branches and crops there but working hard on habitat and um, you know it's interesting when you talk about fighting diseases with habitat that's one of the places where uh, they believe they've been making some progress some guys up there Perry Wood uh, and uh, his co-op um, so our, our branch up there in the northeast or Tim and his group they've been working on habitat and um, the idea of sacrificial food plots so rather than the Deer getting hungry and wandering in to where the cattle are and where their food is uh, to get something to eat. Let's put some sacrificial food plots out there where the cattle and the deer don't mix. Let's spread the deer out on those food plots. You know, rather than uh, mating, which concentrates them in a small area, let's spread them out over a big area. Um, So putting in food plots, putting in habitat, and both the farmers and our, our folks in that area feel, that they are making a difference um, by doing some of that habitat work up there with with fighting the
0: disease. Well, that's good news. But uh, before we get too deep into that, give us a quick uh, update on the ones that we're more familiar with. All
2: right. So, yeah. So those are the two you may not have thought I'd even bring up. So we've got, uh, and then we get to EHD and CWD. Um, EHD this year, I think we have made it. Through um, what we, I mean, we're getting some cooler weather. Um, that will also go away. It's it's um, spread by a biting midge um, that uh, will uh, infect a deer. Um, those midges, I, I guess, going back to habitat, they like to and they like to live in very shallow muddy water. Uh, they will um, breed there. Uh, deer goes to get water from uh, that area. They'll go uh, bite the deer. Um, infect them um, and then they'll get very feverish kills them very quickly um, and uh, they because they're so feverish and hot they run back to water which puts them right near the midges who bite them and and, um, you can end up in a bad situation and and we certainly did in the state in 2012 Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, to my knowledge there's been no widespread outbreaks of EHD uh, in the state this year and it's already October, so I think we can say we've dodged that bullet. We were I was kind of getting pretty nervous because back in uh, July and August it was starting to remind me of 2012 all over again. But uh, I think we're going to be okay. Uh, people and hunters get confused between chronic wasting disease and EHD all the time, and EHD is very dramatic uh, because it kills a lot of deer. Um, and back in 2012, we had areas of our Red Creek Co op, where you had to roll the windows up, <laughs> you know, turn off the air. Uh, I mean, it was, it just stunk terribly. Uh, the uh, And there were guys whose deer herds were basically wiped out that year. I was lucky, I actually went on uh, Michigan Out of Doors. They did a, a segment on uh, EHD and uh, they compared uh, case Casey Young interviewed him at his place. All his deer were dead. He was down by the Grand River. Um, he had dead deer everywhere. Um, in my area, I, I did not find a single dead deer on my farm, but the interesting thing about it was I've never seen more deer on my farm. I think they must not have liked uh, being around all those dead deer. <laughs> Went to where they could huh. find some non-dead deer. <laughs> wow. And uh, I mean, it was it was almost scary how many deer I had uh, when I was out hunting that that fall and actually uh, Case came up to my place and and shot a doe that year just so he could put some venison in the freezer because there was nothing um, at his place down by the the Grand River so um, it can be very spotty Um, the uh, EHD it doesn't kill all the deer but it can kill a lot of the deer Um, but the thing about it is the deer recover so we're just about back in, in my area uh, everybody I talk to in my co-op will say we're just about back population density-wise to where we were um, prior to the EHD outbreak in 2012. The deer recovered quickly. The other big disease that we've got right now is chronic wasting disease, and it's kind of the opposite. It uh, it moves much more slowly. It will kill, uh, to, to the best scientific knowledge, it kills 100%. Uh, of the deer that uh, that get it, and um, yeah, you know, there's. But it can take 18 months to three years, sometimes more, depending on the resistance level that deer has for it to die. And uh, like I'll hear the quote. This one drives me crazy on social media. People will say, "Well, yeah, but uh, you know," and they're comparing it. The, is dramatic. Every deer, you know, it makes. <laughs> You can't open the windows of your house or your car, and, you know, most of the herds are wiped out and things, Um, but, you know, but it goes away. They're comparing that with chronic wasting disease. You really can't see, and the deer take a long time to die. But think about what it's doing. This is a um, mutated uh, protein. They call it prion, and it basically attacks the nervous system of the animal. You know, puts holes in the brain um, and turns that, Uh, brain into a sponge. Uh, And if you're turning a deer's brain into a sponge, uh, they live in a dangerous environment. (laughs) They've got threats to them every day. And uh, if you're losing your mind, um, think about uh, how uh, somebody you know that's maybe had Alzheimer's and how they slowly lose their mind over time. If you're losing your mind and you're out in the Michigan deer woods, you have many ways, many things can kill you. And you can die from many different things um, before chronic wasting disease technically kills you, but it's because your brain was turned into a sponge in the process. And um, so there's, there's there's a big difference there. The other big difference with chronic wasting disease is that it becomes established in the environment. So if we think back to 2012 and in ehd um the next year uh ehd essentially went away and we really haven't had any uh significant ehd deaths since 2012 and it it did that for a couple reasons the deer built up resistance um but also those the, the conditions weren't right for those midges to to come out and and uh you know, get thick. Uh, but chronic wasting disease actually builds up in the environment. It's excreted through saliva. One of the symptoms of having chronic wasting disease is excess excess salivation. So they're going around. They're salivating. Um, it will. They'll be uh, in fairly high concentrations in saliva. They'll also be coming out in the feces from the deer, uh, getting into the environment that way. Um, you know, there's some uh, debates about urine. Uh, Urine does, it's in much lower concentrations in urine, but there's still prions in that urine um, that the deer are excreting. So all three of those can get the uh, prion into the environment, gets into the dirt. Um, There's some interesting research going on right now about different types of soils and how they impact chronic wasting disease, but um, it can be if a a mineral lick um, goes, you know, those of us who have had mineral licks out there, um, you know, deer will literally eat the ground around that uh, mineral spot, you know, dig a hole basically over time. Well, if um, if a deer with chronic wasting disease was in using that mineral lick, those prions got in the soil that the, the other deer come along and eat, um, it can take many years to deactivate those. A deer can get sick from, eating that soil around that mineral block or that mineral that you've uh, spread. Hmm. And so that's why there's regulations against using minerals in chronic wasting disease area. it's a, areas. It's that environmental buildup you're, you're trying to you're worrying about. You see the same thing with a bait pile because that's a concentrated area where you've got uh, food and it keeps getting replenished over the course of the deer season. And, of course, many people don't follow uh, the, the rules for baiting, which calls for it to be spread out over a 10-by-10 10 10 area. They'll just kind of pile it, and that just concentrates it. You know, what do deer do at a bait pile? Well, they, uh, they have saliva. <laughs> they, uh, they don't care where they pee in their poop either. So all that stuff is getting uh, concentrated right in a very small
0: area. So how do, uh, like natural, like licking branches and scrapes and stuff play into that? Is it, is it not as concentrated or do you think that plays part of it too? Oh, it
2: certainly plays a part. Yeah, there's no doubt. And that's, that's where I'm kind of hoping we can talk about some of this habitat stuff uh, about that too. There's, there is, uh, yes, a licking branch. What are they doing? Well, saliva, we know it's in saliva and, uh, uh, buck comes along, goes to a licking branch. They're, uh, they're mouthing that, right? And and it's not just bucks that do that. You put a camera on a licking branch, most of the time, I see more does on there than yeah. actually I see bucks sometimes. Yeah. So uh, the entire herd is essentially using those. So that's certainly a risk as well. Um, and I guess that's a key point here. So baiting and minerals are risk factors, um, but, you know, and they're certainly natural things. You're not going to eliminate chronic wasting disease by eliminating baiting, uh, eliminating minerals. Um, that isn't, but that isn't the point. It's reducing risk and trying to slow the spread sure. of the disease. And those, those are what those are ways you control. You can't go around and uh, stop deer from making lichen branches and scrapes, and, and <laughs> they're they're going to do that. Um, you know, and you're going to have acorn, you're going to have you know oak trees, you're going to have apple trees. There's, um, there the disease is not going away by eliminating feeding uh, or minerals. Um, it's it's just a risk—a you know, risk we can control. And as hunters, we need to be doing all we can to help reduce the risk of the spread.
0: Yeah, it's definitely worth doing.
3: Yeah, I, I think you said something important there. Um, I don't really want to get into the whole bait and mineral thing, but like you said, it is something that we can control versus a natural-looking branch or an apple tree or or whatever else out there that we cannot control. Um, So while it may not be proof to to stop CWD to to band baiting, it is something that the DNR and NRC can control. So I think uh, you're mitigating at least some risk right there um, of something that we can actually help with. Exactly, and...
2: You know, and the thing about it is, and, and again, this goes right back to uh, Habitat, I think, is part of this. But a big part of this is education. It makes me truly sad when I see some of the posts I do on social media about guys, oh, man, if I can't bait, I'm not going to Well, there, <laughs> there are so many things you can do to have a great hunt that have nothing to do with bait. And and that's just sad. I mean, it's, it, 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 you know. Um heck, there's still time you could get some rye out, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> you certainly, certainly got the rain you could get i mean you could get you could you could cut down and you could hinge cut a tree or just cut down a tree um and you could put some food on the ground for this deer and create cover and, and you could move your stand to a spot where it's uh, looking overlooking uh, you know a, a pathway for the deer i mean there's there's yeah. a ton of things you could do right now to uh Make yourself successful hunting and have nothing to do with baiting you might even save yourself some time and money in the process um, because that's the other thing I see well I'm not rich like you guys I gotta, I gotta bait. Well, you know you you're probably spending more or I don't have time. I can only come up on the weekend you know I got one weekend to hunt each year and that's why I should be able to bait. Well, that's probably a good reason not to bait. There's, there's some better ways to use that one weekend you got than baiting. so but that's education. Right. um and and people get hooked on this you know this is the way they hunt they you know they've been hunting that's what you know my they, i go out i put these you know, sugar beets out a couple weeks at a time i uh, replenish them and then I go sit in my stand and i shoot deer yeah
3: um
2: and you know so it gets, so it gets back to habitat and i think habitat can play a huge role there and we can um help hunters understand some ways they can they can be successful without bait. There's no reason to quit hunting um, because you can't bait.
3: So well, that could correct. be a whole other
2: tangent we could we could go
3: off. On. Oh, we're we're going there, buddy. <laughs> we're going there right now. No, that's, uh. That, so yeah, but one other is, uh, quick thing I was to So I
2: mentioned the soil, but also they found that these prions can actually be taken up by the roots of plants. So right. once it gets into the soil, it can be there indefinitely. And as far they, as far as they know those things never break down. Those prions, they, they, one of the researchers I talked to said, think of those like, almost like nuclear waste. They're, the, they're there for a long time. And, uh, and they have a half-life, you know, and they over time. but uh, It actually um, takes, uh, you have to heat something to 1200 degrees. You heat those prions to 1200 degrees before you even break them down. So they, there's people out there that think they can cook it out like you can with BTV and these other diseases, if you you know, if you cook your meat well, you're, you don't have to worry about the disease too much. With chronic wasting disease, you can't cook it out. You know, at least, I don't think you're going to eat a steak that was cooked at 1,200 degrees. So, um, you know, it's it's there like like nuclear waste. You know, it gets up into the plants. Deer eat it. 20 years from now, you could get a deer infected um, from the prions that were excreted this year. So, um, it's it it is it's nuts and Here's where we've been doing a lot of talking and work, and that's around understanding the animal's most likely to be infected. Because we've got other states that have had chronic wasting disease longer than we have. Wisconsin is one that we look at a lot. There's been a ton of research in some of these states. And what you see is this disease takes a long time, takes a um, a lot of frequency of exposure to those prions to infect deer. It's not necessarily going to be the first moment that they, you know, enter this world. And mom licks them, that they catch it. Um, it could take time. So the lowest rates of infection in uh, in deer are for fawns. If you test them, it's very rare for a fawn to test positive. The next least likely animals to have it are yearling does and bucks, and they're infected at uh, basically the same rates. And we see this whether you're looking at studies in Wisconsin or right here in Michigan. If you look at the rates of infection um, for the Montcalm County hot zone area, uh, they're within a couple hundredths of a percentage point of each other, the yearling does and bucks. What you see, though, is a big increase when they go from that one and a half to two and a half. Uh, The bucks more so than the does. So um, it's in that column uh, hot zone, you're going to see uh, that uh, at 2.5, the bucks are infected. I think it's around 2%. Um, and you'll see the does at about 1.3% or so rate of infection. So they've taken a big jump, bucks more so than the does have. And then if we look further out in other states, you see those infection rates continuing to go up as the animals get older. So what you need to watch out for is getting too many older animals of any kind, whether they're female or male, um, on the landscape. And fortunately here in Michigan, or unfortunately, (laughs) uh, fortunately maybe from the disease perspective, we're very good at harvesting bucks. So we don't see many deer making it much past two and a half. Uh, That's very true. And uh, even in areas with APRs, you don't see a ton of bucks. Uh, Because a a two-and-a-half-year-old buck in uh, Montcalm County can look pretty good to most hunters. And so you don't see a lot of those bucks making it very far. But right now in Michigan, we're only harvesting about 0.7 does per buck. And that ratio is true in our disease areas as well. And what that means is even though those does may be infected at a little bit lower rate, Approximately 1.3% versus 2%. If you got three times as many of them, it isn't very difficult math to know where most of your diseased animals are, and that's in the doe herd. And they're the ones that, uh, in addition to uh, you know, where most of our diseased animals are, that uh, they're the ones that breed. So that's how you control your population densities, which also are a huge factor in any
3: disease, especially in those so, areas. I mean. Montcalm and all those areas, the hot area. There's there's a bunch
2: of deer there. Yeah, there's no shortage of deer. Exactly.
3: (laughs) Matter of fact, um, there was
2: a statistic that Chad Stewart shared with me. He said there's some areas there in that in Montcalm where they're harvesting ten bucks per square mile. Holy cow! And that is incredible. To give you an idea of just relative, Michigan has the highest rate. In the country of bucks, buck, buck harvest per square mile, and we're around 3.3 bucks per square mile. Oh, wow. so they're like three times higher than the rate for Michigan, which is the highest in the country. Hmm. Um, and so, yeah, they got a lot of deer. And if you drive around there, you'll see especially you know once leaves start to fall and things, the browse lines are really easy
3: to see. Yeah, so that's actually how yeah. exactly how I how I know that I I was at a a friend's farm up there and we were turkey hunting in the spring and the browse line, everything from five foot down, you could see through, you could see 150 yards through the woods. It was unreal. It looked like cattle had been grazing through there. I mean, so you're definitely not kidding there. And so, APRs and whatnot, that's a whole other discussion, but it's actually part of this discussion too. How does that work with how people are helping with habitat to fight disease. How, wh- yeah. where, are you, where
2: is this? I, I won't try to spend it. I can, that's another, yeah, that's another tangent. Exactly. We can go off on for quite a bit on eight hours. Yeah, and, I'm more interested. And it is another topic like feeding, But what we're really trying to do is get more doe harvest. Okay. Um, and that's what we've been um, preaching, um, you know, and, and working hard at.
3: Um, because there's you know, how many does you know, on the landscape, right? You said there's, exactly. we're going to kill them bucks, we need, a ton of doe out there, and that's what we, we need got, to drive down.
2: Yeah, we've got to shoot more does. we just got to shoot more does. We've got to bring um, those numbers down, and we've got to try to bring the average age of those does down. Let's right. take out more of those sick animals, and one of the good things, I guess, about having a high level of hunting pressure in an area is these deer that are infected, because they are you know they're starting, they're slowly losing their facilities. So you may not be able to see any sign. It may look completely healthy, but its brain is not working quite as well as it could. So in some of the studies, they found that the deer with um, that are infected with CWD are something like 40 to 50 percent more likely to die during hunting season than those who aren't.
3: Because they walk out pneumonia, so, or or whatever the decision that they they make is not quite. Normal, right? Like you'd be,
2: they're easier yeah. to kill. They're not thinking as well as uh, they're not as sharp okay. as the uh, the ones that aren't infected. So it's a dangerous world out there, especially in hunting season, uh, and especially in, you know with, with all the hunters we got in Montcalm County and a, the big herd we got. Um, you know, so what we're trying to do shift the harvest there, and we're, we're encouraging hunters, you know, let the, even before the APRs came, but let the little bucks go. They're less likely to be infected than that old doe. You're sitting there, you're seeing, uh, you know, 15, 20 old does walk by you before that little forkhorn comes out. Heck, Shoot one of those, uh, let that little forkhorn go. Shoot a couple of those does. That's the best thing you can do for the herd and the best thing you can do for the disease. Even if they didn't have chronic wasting disease, they would, it has to happen. It needs to happen if you're going to have a healthy environment there. Um, It's going to and have a healthy, productive herd, they've got to have food year round. A browse line means they don't have all the food that they need, so you've got to bring those numbers down whether they had chronic wasting disease or not. But in this case, the urgency goes up. We, we need to get a handle on that, we need to kick out more of those infected animals. And if you do the math, there, if we let the little year and a half old bucks go, we don't, you know, and we increase the doe harvest. We can end up taking more infected animals out of the herd, and that's what we should all want to do for disease.
3: Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And and before we get into some more specific habitat examples, um, this is this isn't just Michigan, uh, Michigan-based science, right? Like this could be done because we have listeners all over the country, and especially in other CWD zones, the same principles could be applied in those zones too, correct?
2: Yeah, we believe so, and we need to prove it. Uh, but, yes, um, and there's a lot of scientific basis for this. Uh, the key in, our, in in these particular disease areas in Michigan, whether we're talking chronic wasting disease or bovine tuberculosis, for that matter, these are areas where we have high deer densities. Okay. And we've got an unbalanced harvest. And Michigan is, while we may have the highest buck harvest in the country, we are one of the worst in the country in terms of our does per buck. That we harvest. So, um, that means we've got an unbalanced herd more so than probably mo- most of the other states where you've got listeners. Um, we've got a much more unbalanced herd. And just to give you an idea, most of the Midwest states are around 1 to 1.2 does per buck. And we're at 0.7. Um, but Missouri, for example, they look at um, APRs in Missouri as a tool. Um, and they both use them and, and uh, you know, take them away based on what they're trying to accomplish, and I think that's a key way to look at them. It's a, it's a tool, um, and what that tool does is it protects shearling bucks It encourages hunters to go out and shoot a doe because they want to put some venison in their, in their freezer, um, and, uh, you know, that's what APRs do. So in areas where they're trying to bring populations down, they think the densities are too high, APRs are an excellent tool for that. Or if you're trying to balance the herd, APRs are an excellent tool for that. Uh, it, make, it could be more difficult, but what we're, we're, say, we're saying uh, it needs to be done could be a little more difficult maybe in a uh, you know an area that has a far lower density of deer because you may not want to take out the, it's a lot harder to talk a hunter into taking the dill out when you're in, a, let's say, a part of the UP where you've got, the, uh, you know, just a couple of deer per square mile. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's, it's um, that's tough. It, that's, that's a tough situation. Uh, but in this area, with, with the level of hunting we have got, the densities of deer we got, it is. And at least in my view, and a, like a number of others, it's a pretty clear case and a great situation to uh, use APRs as one tool, and not the only tool, uh, but one of the tools to try to attack. The disease. The other big thing that we um, hope the DNR follows through on here and are pushing hard for is to have some doe harvest goals for hunters so it's not just go out and slaughter all the deer which isn't really when you talk to the folks in the DNR of the NRC, that isn't really what they want but it comes across that way because without
3: a goal yes. you know, it's unli-
2: yeah, you hear that all the time right unlimited tags you know all this stuff and if you can set a goal and say, hey, all we're trying to do, and, and what the DNR did for uh, the CWD area in this state is they said, well, let's get up, let's go from 0.7 to 1.1 does per buck. And uh, we know in the first year, because there's going to be fewer bucks taken, that may not uh, right the ship, but in the years after that, if we can get to that level, we're comfortable that we're going to be able to bring that herd under control, we're going to be able to balance the herd, you know, we won't have that big cohort of does out there that are infected compared to the, the bucks. So um, it's a tool, it's an experiment. We need to do it. Uh, frankly, I'm praying that the hunters come through and uh, do the doe harvest that we need to do and that we are able to show the results we can because the alternative is just uh, too horrible to contemplate, actually, which is, you know, keep doing what hasn't worked in Michigan. Um, and uh, and repeating the things that don't work doesn't uh, get us anywhere. This is a new approach. It's a new way to do things and uh, get hunters excited about being out in the woods and hunting because they've got some. They're seeing bucks. They're gonna see more bucks. and have some big bucks in, around and uh, just please shoot a doe when you're in, and try to bring your uh, you balance herd um, when you're doing it. And, and frankly, we can go higher than that. We had uh, back prior to the EHD. Uh, outbreak uh, MSU did a study Our co-ops were shooting 2.2 to 2.3 goes per buck um, and having outstanding honey and frankly in my opinion we could have gone should have, probably could have, should have gone higher because um, populations were just about out of control in my opinion at least in my immediate area right. prior to the EHD outbreak
3: and, and what you're referring to <clears throat> is the three county Antler Point restriction testing area that was implemented this year. Now we talked about that with with Lincoln Roan a few episodes back. Um, and so, so what you're hoping is that in this three county area, we'll see, which is the core zone of the CWD, that that we'll see a significant antlerless harvest, and especially um, of those older deer. And then by not being able to shoot the younger bucks or the four points and six points, the older bucks that are more uh, prone to carrying the disease will be the ones that are able to be harvested. Does is, is that sound right? Exactly.
2: Yep, okay. yeah, we'll be taking out. Once they hit two and a half, um, you know, most of them will be eligible for, the vast majority will be eligible for harvest. An awful lot of hunters, that may be the best year they've ever had a chance to harvest. And I think uh, uh, we will have most of them bite the dust. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, We'll see. We'll see a few more and make it to three and a half, which is just going to make um, raise excitement levels even higher. I mean, we're right at that stage right now, right? Everybody's passing deer camera pictures around, of bucks that are wandering around in their properties. That that gets folks excited. So having a few yeah. more of those folks on the landscape is good. Having those big bucks uh, walking around uh, in moderation, anyway. But um, in a, in the areas we're talking about, I think it's the ideal prescription. We're uh, doing our best to manage the disease. It's not going to go away. Uh, there's no expert I can find anywhere that's going to say we have a, you know, that we're going to be able to make the disease go away with any of our current knowledge or technology. So uh, our goal is keep the keep it low, keep the, the rates of infection low, and slow the spread. And that may be a good uh, good segue to talking some more about habitat.
3: Yeah, let's do it. Um... I'm surprised we made it this far without talking more about it, actually, but this is really interesting stuff, and I think people need to need to hear it. And, but earlier you mentioned up in the TB zone, or tuberculosis zone, I've hunted there for years, um, you mentioned some people like Perry going out there and, and having a plan of action on how they're going to try to slow these diseases down. What else have you heard about, seen, implemented yourself, maybe through QDMA or just personal what have you seen that is helping or could help that we could do?
2: Well, here's the thing. So we're worried about, um, in, and CWD are completely different, but they're also very similar. Um, in, in the ways that they get uh, passed between deer, they're similar. They're completely different in that one's a bacteria and the other's is mutated protein. But, um, it's it's a disease with both frequency. Um, primarily, they'll say it's a frequency-dependent disease, which means how often you're exposed to the prion. Uh, but that's sort of an artificial thing because you also talk about density, and well, the density of deer impacts what the frequency that you're exposed to, right? So, both of those are both of those end up being important factors um, in both of those diseases. So, what we can do, well, there's a number of things we can do, but Think about the periods of time when the deer are most concentrated. Uh, When are those times of the year that we see them in the big herds when focused in around just a couple of food sources or a couple of areas of thermal cover?
3: Yep, late season, winter. Yeah, yeah, late season
2: and winter. They're all going to be, so they'll, right now, crops are all still up. um, Food is spread out across the landscape. Uh, they don't need thermal cover. Uh, the deer are spread out, uh, but, uh, you know, hunting season may uh, do some concentration. The crops get harvested. Uh, the, the fewer areas that they can go to shrinks shrinks even further for the deer. And then once it starts getting cold, they need they need thermal cover as well as food. So these deer keep concentrating into smaller and smaller areas, larger groups. Um, I can, again, think back to, I think it was, uh, you know, Around 2012 we had a really bad winter And even in my little area of Ionia County Kind of southwest Michigan For the folks outside of the state um, We uh, normally don't have Any winter kill at all Well that year um, I had planted I think I mentioned I planted a bunch of spruces And pines and I had Some thermal cover And basically the only only Thermal cover in the section It was incredible How many deer were packed Into that, that little area of thermal cover that I had there. Really? It, it looked like I would come around the corner to, you know, to check things and I try not to bother them because they're in there so thick but it was like a sea of brown. <laughs> and they were spilling out into my woodlot from the spruces and pines and you could see uh, it was like thick. I could shoot a shot into that. Spruces or or into the spruces and pines are into my woodlot and I guarantee I'd get a shot. I'd get a deer at least half the time. I mean, they were just thick. Uh, That that next spring, I went in there and I had um, deer shit, or deer uh, excrement uh, maybe six, seven inches deep in places. No way. And all the paths they made through the snow and things, it was, so here was this thermal cover they needed, um, and they were, unfortunately, you and I had food, but they ate it all really quick, but they they were packed in there, and they were chewing on every spruce branch uh, they could find, which is a really low-quality food for a uh, white-tailed deer. But they were, they were eating, eating that, <laughs> eating everything they could chew on, basically, in there. Um, so if we start to think about disease, you know, this is bad just in general for the deer, right, to be in those kind of situations. But if we start thinking about the disease, now we've got them just absolutely crammed into a, a tiny space, they're uh, they're swapping spit all the time. They're socially interacting with each other all the time. It is the worst case scenario for a, for a disease spread. So you know, one one thing we can think all should all think about is well, look at our own areas. And I know you talked about this, Jared, but you know, look at our own areas and look for what's not there. You know, um, and certainly in my area of Ionia County, there just isn't a lot of thermal cover. So. You know, if you want to um, attract and hold deer, you know, for the late season and do the right thing for the herd, give the, you know, give them a chance to spread out, um, give them some more thermal cover. You know, we, we could, I'd love to see the state go in and, and help us with some, uh, you know, some grants or something that put in more thermal cover in more places throughout that uh, disease area where they could um, get out of, you know, so we don't concentrate them. And then put in thermal cover with food. Now you got thermal cover and food; these deer can spread out um, even more. So uh, habitat can make a huge difference in in that period of time. The other period of time that doesn't get talked about much, but I think can be important from a disease perspective, is in the spring fawning period. Now what you got going on at that point is um, the doe um, is you know she's getting she knows her time is coming she's going to Give birth soon, and she'll kick out the yearlings. Um, she doesn't want anything around. She's gonna she's gonna have her little area. She's gonna give birth in, and she does not want any other deer around that area. So she'll kick her previous year fawns out. And in a low density herd, they may not go very far. They're gonna, you know, they're just get uh, you know, a quarter mile away, half mile away. Uh, hang out, you know, once mom's uh, the fawns and fawns reach a certain age, you know, she'll mom will welcome them back, they'll form their little group, they're all good. But uh, what you see, uh, we've done a number of dispersal studies, spring dispersal studies, and you see in areas of high density where there's low amounts of doe fawning cover, uh, the does kick those uh, little young of the previous year out. They go go a quarter mile away and the next doe kicks them out. They go another quarter mile, the next doe kicks them out. And they keep going. And in some of these studies, uh, both uh, does, you you, you know, the young does and young bucks can go um, 30 to 50 miles in some cases in agricultural areas. That's where they see the longest distance. You know, so think about Ionia County. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, woodlot to woodlot, basically. So they get kicked out by mom. They go to the next little woodlot, next little patch of CRP cover. They get kicked out by the does there. They keep on going. But if they did happen to get infected um, with uh, bovine tuberculosis or chronic wasting disease from their, their uh, maternal doe group, and they get kicked out, and they go as far as they may go till they can find a little niche cover where a deer's not going to kick them out. Um, that's going to spread disease. So that's, you know, right there, starting to look at, well, okay, what can we do to help with winter thermal and food uh, for the deer? So they're not going to be uh, clustered around the one last apple tree in the county and, the, you know, the, the one little patch of pines and spruce that Eric planted. But, you know, s- spread them out, give them lots of thermal cover, lots of food um, during that winter period, and then think about spring fawning period as well.
0: Yeah, that's a a good time to uh, go into more detail about what we can do. You touched on some of it with uh, adding thermal cover and just spreading the cover out. What else is there that, what else could we do to remedy these problems?
2: Well, uh, another big one that's great for fawning cover is native grasses and wildflowers. So, or even just letting an old field grow up, you know, natural succession. Just don't mow it. Let, the, let that field uh, uh, grow up. That can create some fantastic spawning cover in just a year, uh, and food, and basically year-round cover for the deer. So it's great for hunting. You know, this isn't just all altruistic, right? We're, we're also uh, we're doing some things here that are going to be great for our hunting in the fall as well. So sure. um, that can be a really simple thing. Uh, Dr. Craig Harper was in Michigan a couple of years ago, and he was talking about uh, just how much food you can produce from an old field by letting it grow and maybe selectively taking out some of the plants that are not quite as uh, desirable for the deer. So, that, that, you know, that, that creates that fawning cover. So think about native grasses. Um, think about um, the forbs. Um, you can plant those or you can just let them kind of naturally reemerge in the field. Um, think of, and, you know, think about um, foods. if you're looking at apple trees, for example. Maybe think about some apple trees that hold on to their apples a little bit longer. So, um, but not just one. You know, let's let's spread them out. Um, I mentioned, um, I think at the beginning, a little bit about um, hunters and some things they can do right now. Now they can't bait, but what can we do right now? I mentioned cutting down trees or hinge cutting trees. Well, uh, back in that uh, winter I was talking about, uh, where things were tough in Ionia County, I was cutting down trees and putting food on the ground. I knew I could kill the deer with corn or um, you know, suddenly introducing some foods that, at that point, their stomachs couldn't handle. But a new browse was good. That's a, that's one of the – they're made to eat browse in the winter. So I was cutting down trees, and it was amazing. I cut down um, a little cluster of trees uh, near that uh, patch of pines and spruces that I talked about. I walked about maybe 150 yards away and started cutting down some maple trees that were, are just ideal browse, putting them in the gum. I looked back to where I had just been and there was already a crowd of deer around chewing on the ends of those branch tips. Wow. So you can put a lot of food. And the nice thing about that, you know, whether you hinge cut or just completely cut it down, you're not just putting food down for that that period of time, but you're putting food, you're, you're impacting and putting food out there for the deer for years to come. So, um, and I know you guys talk about this, but if you hinge cut a tree, you're going to have browse, uh, you know, on that tree. For You know,
3: as long as that tree
2: stays alive, it's going to keep growing browse, and it's going to be down at a level where you can right. access it. Right, and right. you cut down a tree, mm-hmm. um, you know, you get all those stump sprouts. And in fact, they'll call those mineral sprout trees you'll get. That's such a healthy um, sprout that comes out of there filled with minerals um, and very healthy for the deer to eat. They'll, that'll pump out food. And then of course you get the sunshine coming down in the forest floor and everything else that grows. Exactly. Put down those trees. So, um, you know, those things uh, can be done and can can make a big difference as well. Essentially, what you're trying to do, you're talking about frequency and density. Um, well, let's spread the deer out. Let's let's do our bit as hunters to control the the population level. But then let's also, as we improve more habitat, we're actually creating we're increasing the carrying capacity uh, of the land for deer. Uh, and, and uh, you know, you can increase carrying capacity. You can then, uh, um, you know, if, if there were no diseases at all, you could have more deer, period. But you can have end up having more deer. If you do more habitat work, you can have more deer than you have today. But it's going to be a healthier situation because you've raised the carrying capacity of deer of all that they can eat all year round. Um, they're not going to be, uh, pushed together into these small spots where they're, um, you know, spreading diseases as much uh, as they were before. Uh, so you can have a healthier deer herd uh, all the way around, um, more deer, better hunting, uh, more venison in the freezer. Um, and that's why I think habitat is, and there's more to say about it, but that's in essence why I think habitat's so important. That's why I wanted to reach out to you, Jared.
3: Yeah, no, I I think you brought up some, some excellent points, and it seems like cover and food, bear with me while I process this and try to, try to say it right, I'm thinking co- the increase of cover and food is one thing, but at the same time, spreading these deer out seems to be the main common denominator here. I mean, as long as we want to bring in all these deer within 30 yards of our tree stand, right? That's that's a selfish thing. That's that's what we do this for, though. It's and and you it's know it's it's okay. But at the bigger picture, you know, years down the road as a conservationist, I mean, you like you said, increase the full carrying capacity on your property by increasing the habitat everywhere. It may not bring them by your exact tree stand every time, but it may be by the other tree stand or or out there, which is fine, because you're benefiting. Overall, in a totally increased amount. I mean, does that make sense?
2: Yeah, it does. I mean, and you, you know, and I'll use. So I'll go back and I'll use the example of my farm. And um, you know, I had those that patches of spruces and pines. I had native um, grasses and, and forbs immediately surrounding those pines. I had a woodlot there. You know, so I had all these ingredients. But that's only a 79 acre farm. Right. um you know and you don't want every deer in the whole section or uh, you know from a large area converging into one little farm like that you need you need more of those and so co-ops play a role in that um but everybody who's out listening to this and doing habitat work is helping and to you get your neighbors to do some habitat work or let's uh let's spread those deer out let's right. give them all the food they need and have more and bigger deer to to hunt and, and shoot, but we're also doing the right thing for disease.
3: Yeah, I love it. I love it. Those are some great points. there. I have a, a bunch of notes written down here. Um, it, was there any other certain habitat strategy or, or implementation or of a certain practice that you would recommend? In, in, well, with yeah, the, 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 yeah,
2: these are more like ideas that I was thinking about when when uh, we uh, set this up, and there's no scientific proof to this, um, you know, that it says this is the right thing to do. But it's just stuff I've been thinking about. Sense. And I actually want to hear what you guys have to say about some of these ideas. One of the things I started doing a couple of years ago is planting my turnips and radishes just a little bit later. You know, I plant them in late July type time frame. Um, I've moved it back now. About and plant them mid-August. And the reason I'm doing that is I don't want them getting quite as big. I mean, I remember I've had some soccer ball-sized turnips, <laughs> and, uh, but what I'm what I'm thinking there is, well, you know, if you've got a soccer ball-sized turnip or even a football-sized one or even a softball-sized one, you may end up with uh, more than one deer uh, eating that turnip. So even though they're not concentrated, they're over a big area, and that's a big difference from a fruit plot, um, you know, so uh, don't get me started on that one, but. Uh, It's it's not baiting, but still, if you get multiple deer chewing on the same thing, it's not a good idea from the disease perspective. So wait a little longer, plant my turnips just a little bit later, and now they're more baseball size. And, you know, most deer, um, you're not going to eliminate it, but you're you're minimizing the number of times deer are going to eat on the same turnip. Great. So, you know, one simple idea. Another one that I've been thinking about, I love apple trees. I've got um, apple trees all over my, apple and pear trees all over my farm. But uh, and I'm certainly not cutting them down. Um, and as a matter of fact, um, I'm going to continue to put up apple trees. But what I'm thinking about is smaller. So this year I planted a couple of crab apple trees. I've got a bunch of um, some sergeant crab apples I planted years ago. But it's a smaller apple. You know, you plant a crab apple tree plant one that hangs on to its crab apples for a long period of time it's going to be dropping food over that long period of time but they're more like the single bite bait right they are are one single bite for a deer to eat that crab apple versus some of the uh, larger apples where you can end up with multiple deer eating on the same apple you know so it's just a, just a thing to think about there's um, certainly certain things that I've been thinking about but how do we uh, you know help the deer give them the food uh, the cover that they need but but also not increase uh, the risk uh, you know and maybe yeah. even decrease it if we uh, if we think about uh, think about some of those uh, foods that we plant that
0: way yeah that makes a lot of sense uh i think it, it's important to come up with new ways of thinking through things like you did you know it may or may not work with the smaller turnips and the smaller apples but we need everybody trying to think of a uh, different approach to try to try to change the way we've been doing things, and I, I think every little bit helps here. Well,
2: thanks. That's You know, you, you, uh, you, you wonder sometimes, but, it, you know, I, I can't go to somebody and say, you absolutely need to plant your turnips later, but to me, it just makes sense. Sure.
0: Now, Eric, have you seen any uh, things, we talk about soil health a lot on this podcast, have you seen any type of amendments that people are doing that are helping with any of these diseases? I know something on the cutting edge been talked about a lot now is humic acid and things like yeah. that.
2: Yeah, that one's exciting. As a matter of fact, we had Kip Adams in uh, back in September. He came up to Montcalm County and talked to some talked to hunters about the CWD research, but that question come up. came up there and Kip Adams, our director of conservation at the QDMA, I, he's one of uh, um, one of the top guys in the country. And his answer to that was, "Well, that was one of the most exciting things going on right now, frankly, um, with respect to CWD research. And there are some inter- there are some exciting things going on with that. But humic acid looks promising. There's much more that needs to be done. Nobody, you know, I've seen some people, you know, saying this is now the miracle." A miracle cure, but it uh, we're not quite at that point. I mean, what they've been able to show is that at least in some soils, you can um, uh, at least partially deactivate the prion by exposing it to humic acid. But uh, much more testing has to be done on many different soils to see what the different impacts are, you know, just how infectious those prions might be, uh, you know, what, what the impact could be. But it's exciting, and it's, you know, exciting in a lot of ways because humic acid is a fairly inexpensive uh, agricultural compound that uh, uh, could be applied if you're, if you're, uh, I think about deer farmers, if, you know, right now, if you've got chronic wasting disease on your deer farm, uh, you're shut down. Uh, you can never raise deer on that farm again. Uh, mm-hmm. You can know, you could, you, could uh, de- you know, get rid, get rid of your herd, decontaminate the soil, um, potentially a deer farmer could safely continue to do business and not have his entire, entire livelihood ruined. If we think about places like, I've got a spot on my farm where for years I was putting out minerals and, uh, you know, it, it, following the instructions <laughs> from the, uh, you know, in, in mixing it with the dirt, and I've got a big hole now. Uh, for, you know, they've been digging out, digging that up and, um, You know, it would be great. I would love to go in and spray that down with humic acid and say, okay, I've done something. You know, maybe it's not going to be infective anymore. Sure. Either that or I'm going to have to come up with a way to, I don't know what. (laughs) Uh, But maybe it's very, I don't know what I can do there. But, um, you know, you don't want deer to continue to do that in the disease area. So being able to spray humic acid would be fantastic. Um, You know, hell is spraying on our food plots. It's got some positive. uh, Right. Impacts from a from an agricultural perspective as well. So um, all of that gets me excited. I don't think it's a cure for chronic wasting disease, but it certainly it's a it's a thing we can control. Getting back to something you said earlier, it's a thing we can do uh, that is a thing we can control that's going to help. And so that's exciting. I hope it is going to help. It's it's exciting anyway. So let's cross our fingers and and uh, hope that uh, that research moves quickly.
3: Yeah, and I, I think we have to do everything we can in our control to to try to help. If, if that means getting your deer tested, versus just throwing in your truck and driving it home, I mean, let's all be responsible and look out for the future of our our hunting heritage and legacy here. And I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I want to keep hunting deer until I'm like 112. So I don't want it to, to go away anytime soon and if that means I have to go through a couple extra hoops, uh throughout my life, you know. I'm okay with that. But I know it's a it's a touchy subject and, and Eric I do appreciate you coming on here and, and I mean, you're a wealth of information. What a great what a great podcast. And uh it, if anybody wants to reach out to you personally or, or maybe, you know, dig in a little bit deeper on this and, and inform themselves on any of these four diseases, CWD, uh, you know, what do you recommend that they do?
2: The, um, well, a couple of things. The DNR has an excellent website, an emerging diseases website. I don't have a link handy, but if you go out to the DNR website, they'll have, you can find that emerging wildlife diseases page on the DNR website, and there is some excellent information there. That, uh, on uh, all of those diseases And you'll see some of the latest uh, You know the, the, What they found in Michigan you'll, you'll see some of that out there um, A lot of good information In addition the QDMA uh, QDMA.com Has fantastic information Online uh, uh, On the, these different deer diseases And on habitat and, um, So that can be a really good resource For somebody that wants to so you want to learn more about deer, deer hunting, deer diseases, uh, what you can do to improve your property, the QDMA page is great for that. We also, uh, the QDMA helps to fund the Chronic Wasting Disease Alliance, and uh, that's a, a number of groups. Uh, QDMA is one of the founding groups there, but uh, you've got the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Mule Deer Foundation, a number of others that um, help to fund that, and that is basically a clearinghouse of, Information um, any on chronic wasting disease, so it's a great web page to go out to, and you can just do a Google CWD Alliance. And so those would be three real good places to go. Uh, whatever you do, don't go to Facebook and try to learn about these diseases. So. <laughs> Mic <Mike> drop. <Yes. laughs> well. There is some good stuff posted on the, in, in the Michigan QDMA page. I guess I'll put in a plug in that. There you uh, go. On Facebook. Um, we, uh, we try to, to, you know, science-based information, we try to, try to share that as much as, as possible. And um, a number of our branches and co-ops in the state also are sharing good information.
3: Uh, but there's also some real bad information out there on Facebook. So, <laughs> yeah. everywhere. Yeah, I I can't, I don't even try anymore. I don't even try to keep up with the stuff on Facebook with that. So, uh, talking to guys like you and and even Lincoln, who informed us a lot on the study, I learned so much more within this last hour and a half than than I do hours cruising Facebook. But um, on a lighter note, before we totally shut this down, I always like to ask our guests what their favorite tree is for Habitat a tree you plant, a tree you might have on your property. What's your favorite tree on your property right now?
2: Um, kind of apples. curveball. I know it just
3: came out of nowhere, but.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to, apples, I love apples, and I love studying apples. <laughs> There's so much history. I've got an apple tree on my farm um, that's a variety, I think it was the 1500s. Um, no way. In Europe that it, that, that it came out. I've got another one called Spitzenberg, which is Thomas Jefferson's favorite apple. Um, I just, just planted another one last year, called the De- um, variety called Detroit Red. It's one of two varieties, I think it was the Shiawassee Beauty was the other one, uh, that um, were right there at the founding of Detroit. When the French uh, uh, priests um, came in and founded Detroit, they planted apple trees using seeds from France, and across they got naturally crossbred and hybridized, and um, these uh Detroit Red emerged as one of those varieties um, older than our country, older than our state. Um, And I have one of those planted at my farm. And um, those are just a couple of them. And as far as just making food for deer, I got two favorite apples. One is the Liberty disease resistant apple, it makes apples every single year. I've never seen it fail. And it does it in quantity. Um, And it does it fairly light, and it hangs on to the apples for a good period of time. So it'll feed them over a you don't know, get the food, food plot or uh, bake pile effect with them you know, piled up under the tree. They're, they're dropping them over a long period of time. Um, and then I've got the, the second favorite apple tree I've got is one that was on my farm in the one little part of the wood, wood lot that I had when I, when I bought it. And this apple tree, I have no idea how old it is, but it's huge. It's probably 40 feet tall and got a trunk on it that uh, um, is just, enormous, and it makes apples almost every year. I was bragging to a couple of my buddies that, that it never failed in 20 years, and then last year I didn't get an apple. So,
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> But, but uh, this year, sure not like, awesome. sure. look like I was going to get some apples, but I actually created some apples, but it, it, most years it is just loaded, even though it's the, it's an old apple tree. It's so one I kind of rescued. I, I cut down all yeah. the surrounding trees to so get some sunlight, and it just came back good and hard. So um, Anyway, apple trees, think apple trees, and I guess with disease, think crab apple trees,
3: too. Yeah, yeah. Well, look at that, that that question uh, never ceases to amaze me. A bunch of more awesome information. You'd be surprised the type of responses we get from that that question right there, and that was one of the better ones. I appreciate that. (laughs) You bet. Eric, hey thanks so much for your time tonight. I really uh, do appreciate you reaching out and coming on. I think that was an excellent podcast, and, uh, you know, we'll keep in touch, and, and good luck this fall. Um, Brian, anything else from you on your end? I know you're going hunting tomorrow, so you got to go. <laughs>
0: no, nah. nah, I'll just reiterate another thanks to Eric for coming on. Uh, really good information for our guests, and we might have to have you back on and talk planting apple trees. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: Sounds good. Yeah, you, good luck to you guys. I'm getting out on Friday for the first time. I've got to go to my thing for a meeting in the afternoon, but I'll be out in the morning. Hopefully, uh, getting that opportunity, my first opportunities at a buck or two.
3: Awesome. Just in time for that cold front. So, Legal. another episode dialing, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. And thank you, Eric, for coming on. I really enjoyed that conversation. I learned a bunch of stuff. I hope the listeners did as well. And, uh, you know, we're going to try to do our part to help fight these diseases with uh, our habitat improvement. That's something we can all do as uh, habitat managers. And I, I really like the, the discussion points that you brought up tonight. So thanks for that. I want to thank our sponsors. We have Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Packer Max, Cultipackers, Hunt Wise, and Killer Food Plus. Thank you guys so much for supporting the podcast. Uh, guys, we have a new website at habitatpodcast.com. All of our uh, podcasts are up there, along with some new gear. Check us out there. If you haven't listened to us before, you can find us on any place that has podcast episodes, you know, like iTunes or Spotify, uh, Stitchers, Podbean, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio. Wherever you can get a podcast, you'll be able to find us. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We're pretty active on all those, especially Facebook and Instagram. So check us out on there, guys, and uh, we look forward to your support. And uh, you'll leave us a good review if you don't mind. Um, We look forward to... You know, talking again soon. We have some more good episodes in the books coming up, guys. And I really want to wish everybody good luck for the rest of October here in November. We'll talk to you guys.